Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Right, corporations aren't don't aren't psychopaths in that sense. They're psychopaths in the sense that greed is their only value. So, right. but that's still homicide. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, um, how are you doing today? I'm good, Steve. How are you? You like how I drew that out? <laughs> the suspense. <laughs> I know. I thought you were going to say something maybe different than uh, the usual. No, I. I mean, the only thing I'll, I'll mention is that I can see your little blue light, and I know that Raz is. Uh, that's a big uh, faux yeah. pas of his. I mean, come on. We we've been doing this for how long now? Thank you. Thank you for warning me. I know he hates that. Right. <laughs> for our listeners, our mics have gonna... little blue lights on them. And, yeah, and, uh, and Raz has made it clear that if he sees that blue mic, he's not happy. So and uh, and on and on his mics, he has like electrical tape over yes. the light, so he's a little yeah. cuckoo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just try to make sure you look good. That's okay. right. That's right. <laughs> look, look good for the podcast, right? That's right. Raz? That's right. <laughs> Got it. Well, um, well, Yvonne, um. So we have a great show today. We have a fantastic guest, and um, I'll, I'll go ahead and introduce John Eustel. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Well, um, we are so glad to have you on. John is a, a, a fantastic trial lawyer from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He's a founding partner of Kelly Eustel, uh, and um, you can look him up at kellyustel.com. That's K-E-L-L-E-Y-U-U-S-T-A-L. Dot com and um, and we're looking forward to a really great show. Um, but Yvonne, I was going to tell you uh, first, um, just not that we try to get people to join, you know, different trial lawyer organizations. But um, I don't know if if you knew, but we had our uh, Aboda Masters in Trial program last Friday uh, here in Savannah, and um, it was really. I, I just I just wanted to do a shout out for all of the lawyers who participated, the judges. Um, it was really a fantastic program. And um, as you know, or maybe our listeners know that ABOTA is American Board of Trial Advocates. It's a, it is a, an organization that stands up for the right to jury trial. That's, that's you know, um, we want to make sure that we don't uh, lose that right. Um, and, um, and it's both plaintiff and defense lawyers. And so we, um, we, uh, did what's called a master's in trial. And so we actually tried a medical malpractice case and we had, uh, there are two different Georgia, uh, Aboda organizations. There's Georgia Aboda, which was the first one. And then there was the spinoff, which is the Southeast Georgia Aboda, which is Augusta, Savannah, Brunswick, um, those areas. And, um, and so we had a, a trial of a med mal case and, um, and the Southeast Georgia Boda was uh, representing the plaintiffs and the, and Georgia Boda was representing the defendant. Uh, and it was, a, and, um, it was just, a, a I, I was really impressed by how serious every lawyer took it, every witness took it and, um, and our judges, and we had a jury in there and it resulted in a plaintiff's verdict uh, probably not as much as they wanted, but it was a uh, 2.26 million. And so, and, and, and I don't know if you knew this, Yvonne, but uh, we had, uh, it was a challenge between, between the two groups. So there's a massive trophy that was given away to the uh, Southeast Georgia Boda afterwards. 
But I did, uh, I, I did see a picture of the trophy. Yeah. Um, I wondered if you had anything to do with that. Oh yeah. Um, no, I, told I know everybody. you like to win. <laughs> well, not only that, but I told everybody, I said, I want this to be like the Stanley cup so that, you know, whichever side wins, they get to keep the trophy for a while, take some pictures with it, pass it around. And then they'll, we'll bring it back next year. Hopefully we'll do this every year. And, uh, and then we'll have the trophy there again. And whoever wins that one will take the trophy with them that, uh, that year. So, uh, very cool. Well, I'm glad you brought that up also because, and this, this relates to our guest, John as well, but, um, you know, it's so hard to, especially when you're getting started, you want to know what happens at trial. And depending on what you did in law school, you didn't really see any. Um, and you know, especially right now, it's really tough depending to see one, I guess, maybe if you can find one on zoom or, um, that's being, you know, broadcast somehow or, CVN or whatever, then you might be able to see something. But, um, you know, it's funny because otherwise you want to know what happens. And the only real way that you get to see it sometimes is through transcripts, if there's a transcript of a trial. And, you know, depending on the style of work that your firm does, you don't have that many of those a year. Right. You know, I just remember really wanting to know what happened. And, and it's not until you really get to go and watch trials, you can learn. But I, you know, the next best thing is, being able to learn from others who are willing to teach you, who are, who are willing to do these mock trials or mock openings, closings. And um, John, I know you do a lot of stuff with trial school. And I just think that's so huge because, um, you know, that's how newer lawyers learn is, is really from other lawyers being willing to share their knowledge and resources. And it's just um, so something like that, a mock trial, especially with with jurors, yeah. you know, yeah. is huge because otherwise you're just talking about your case to other lawyers. and. Yeah. We all have lawyer brain. Yeah, and you get to ask the jurors uh, afterwards in ways that you don't always get to ask in a, in a real trial. Yeah, I, that's I, right. You know, that's right. I, Steve and I, I think, are uh, luckier than uh, you in that, um, that it was easier to get trials a while ago. Um, and that's a shame, you know. Yeah. So we, we have to figure out a way to pass on the information. It's not like I invented it. You know, it was passed on to me. But uh, so I do feel an obligation to pass it on to to younger lawyers who have more trouble getting it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and it's like we always say, I, I mean, you know, the best way to um, to learn how to try a case is to just get in there and try a case. Um, the second best way is to watch a case be tried. So it's it's great to watch lawyers, you know, from all over. This one was uh, lawyers from all over Georgia and just look at their different styles and look at, uh, you know, how each did things in their own way. All I, I thought all very effective and did it very well, but they all had their own personal stamp that they put on it. Yeah. So, um, well, John, let's talk, uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, your background. So everybody can know, uh, everything that you've accomplished. You, I mean, John has tried a number of great cases, lots in the uh, field of product liability, some against big tobacco, and just had, uh, some tremendous verdicts including, you know, verdicts involving fuel tanks, seat belts, helmets, like I said, some of the tobacco cases. And then the case we'll be talking about today is a, uh, is a pressure cooker case. And um, so John is a graduate from Georgetown University and then went to Miami, uh, University of Miami. And I'm going to, I want to talk to him about his experience at University of Miami, because I had a similar experience at my law school in my first year. Um, but as I said, John has tried just a ton of cases, all just gotten some really, really fantastic results. 
uh, has been named best lawyers in America from 2008 through the present, uh, super lawyers from 2009 through the present. In 2016 was the lawyer of the year for best lawyers. Uh, we already mentioned that he's on the faculty of the trial school, which is a, a great group that sort of brings uh, trial lawyers from all over the country um, and, and sort of is a, a uh, mix and match of different styles and sort of melding them together. Um, you know, from jury selection through opening, closing, you know, how you handle witnesses. Um, but uh, John was the product liability uh, lawyer of the year, uh, was named as the most effective lawyer for product liability by the Daily Business Review, and um, and has written a book called Corporate Serial Killers, uh, which uh, I, I definitely want to go read. Uh, it sounds like it's uh, just a, a fantastic book. And, and honestly, you know, when you're taking on some of these cases, um, you know, and you see the behind the scenes and, and you know, I always think about this, you know, because when even when we get great evidence, even when we get, um, you know, the emails or, you know, the memos, I still feel like we're only seeing sort of the tip of the iceberg of what's really being discussed in these corporations. And I'm not saying every corporation is bad, but there's uh, a lot have have definitely put money uh, and greed over safety. And so John has uh, has been spending his whole career fighting corporations uh, like that. If I could just say a couple of things about that. Uh, First, the the book's not available yet. It will be. Sorry, I thought it was. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's not available yet. It will be soon. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, it's, I'm glad you brought that up. And in relation to this case, because as we talk about it a little more, you'll see how the, the, the real evidence was hidden and it was always hidden a little more. And you guys know from your cases, it, it happens um, a lot that the case is different if you put in the work than it seemed at the beginning because of the horrible stuff. You know, plaintiff's lawyers are by nature, I think, uh, generous in their ability, willingness to share evidence. And so th- and that's so helpful because sometimes you have a case where you already know some of the bad evidence from inside the corporation before you start because of other lawyers. But um, but, you know, it, the, it, you, the case doesn't show up with the with the internal evidence. you got to go get it. And right. this is a perfect example of a case <clears throat> where that the internal evidence changed it from an impossible case that no one would or could ever win, nor should they, into the most devious corporate crime you've ever seen. And, you know, I'd love to talk about trials. I think I'm great in trial. You know, I'm the most arrogant son of a bitch you ever met. (laughs) So I want to talk about trial. But every time I talk about this case, people are like, holy shit. You know, they want to hear more about it. So I'm actually glad we're talking about that. No, I, 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 you know, and, and I definitely want to uh, uh, get into that because, I mean, just just from investigating this case and just uh, and we're going to talk a lot more about it and just, you know, deciding to take the case um, had to be a tremendously difficult decision for you and your firm, you know, while you're you're looking into this. And so into uh, so the work uh, and just, you know, the perseverance and, and refusing to give up is um is just fantastic. But I did want to go back for one second and just mention that I read about you, John, that when you were at the University of Miami, um, you uh, it was Hurricane Andrew came through yeah. and uh, and basically knocked out your electricity and, uh, and uh, I'm sure destroyed a number of buildings and things like that during your first year. And so they had to compact your your first year of law school into a um, 
into a much shorter session uh, and not always having electricity. And, and, um, and, and yet, despite that, um, I think I saw that you finished uh, number one in your class in, in every single subject. So uh, that's pretty tremendous. And, um, and, and, and I'll, I'll just mention the reason why I was, uh, I had a, not, not, as, not like your experience, but a similar experience in my first year, my first semester of law school, um, about, a, about a week and a half before our final exams, we had just a uh, terrible ice storm out in, in Portland, Oregon. And I literally, I remember I was printing off my, my uh, criminal, uh, criminal law outline and like I got it printed out and then all the power for, you know, our house, the law school, everything was just out and it stayed out for about uh, eight days. And, um, and, you know, and the, and the law school had said, you know, if we can get power up, we're not, uh, we're not going to delay any of the exams or anything. And so, uh, so we had to study by the fire or by, you know, by, you know, lamplight, we went out and bought a bunch of camp, uh, camping lanterns, and we were uh, studying our, our, you know, uh, for our exams by camping lanterns. So uh, a similar experience, not as, uh, not as bad as what you had to go through with uh, Hurricane Andrew. It, it was, you know, it's funny how it relates to me being a trial lawyer. But at the time, obviously, I was just starting out. You know, we, we we had a couple of days of getting orientation and stuff. And that's when Andrew hit. And I, I'm from Fort Lauderdale. So we hadn't moved into our apartment yet. My cousin uh, was an undergrad at the University of Miami, and we were going to move into the apartment a little late. But that's what the problem was. Everyone else had... Um, already had electricity and phone service and then the hurricane hit and so they spent about two months people outside of south florida don't realize what happened with andrew but i mean it was devastating people would have starved but the army came in and trees were down you could barely move um so when we called them we were said hey, we need new service they're like <laughs> what there's no that's yeah. not we don't do that anymore. So right. <laughs> that we had to live without electricity because they weren't, you know, they were trying to repair people already had service. But, you know, the, the idea of not having enough time to get something done and maybe having some type of um, something that makes it harder for you than the other side, that, that's kind of what plaintiff civil lawyers do. And yeah. you have to figure a way to, um, in a short amount of time, figure out what's important enough, uh, get that done and maybe not enough sleep. And um, I don't know, it turned out to be great training, I think, for being a, a trial lawyer. It's certainly a plaintiff's trouble. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, working under tough conditions and, and through adversity. And um, but yeah, that's a that's a crazy story. I mean, especially in your first uh, first year of law school, when you, you know, uh, at least at least speaking from my experience, I had no idea what I was walking into, except that yeah. I knew it was going to be hard. So, yeah. yeah, I was scared. I remember. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> well, just so you guys know, I have my own extreme weather at law school story, which was my third year. It actually snowed in Athens, which doesn't happen too often. Right. And the roads were really slippery. Um, and I went out to get something from my car and I was on my phone and, um, it was a flip phone because I was a poor law student <laughs> and, um, um, and I fell and I fell so hard that I cracked my flip phone my flip phone open on my face <laughs> <completely> <laughs> broke it in half <laughs> that's it 
That's that's yeah. that's as bad as it got. But it was I, pretty I, I bet you're going to say like you had an indentation of the phone on your face. I can't believe I didn't have like right. the numbers on the side of my face. But yeah. it was it was bad enough holding my phone that was in two pieces from um, smacking against my own face. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, well, John, let's talk a little bit about um, the Gonzalez versus Lifetime Brands uh, Incorporated and Vincent International Distributing and Yvette uh, Buto. Tamo, uh, I'm gonna, am I saying that right? Um, Tannis, sorry, Tannis. Um, but the, the, the main defendant, I think, was Lifetime Brands uh, Incorporated. Uh, and this involved a pressure cooker. Uh, Lifetime Brands, if anybody's familiar with them, it's a very large corporation. They they sell KitchenAid or they make KitchenAid. They make Farberware and a bunch of other brands, including Vasconia, which is the one that we're talking about here. Uh, so on September 14, 2015, uh, Samantha Gonzalez was, uh, she was either two or three years old. I saw different references. He was two. Yeah. Okay. Two years old, two years old. She was being bathed by her grandmother in the kitchen sink. And at the same time, her grandmother was making some, uh, soup in a Vasconia aluminum eight quart pressure cooker. Uh, and while she was, while the, the, um, pressure cooker was going, it started to, uh, leak and then started to spew, uh, the you know, scalding contents, uh, across the room and, and even onto, uh, Samantha. And so, um, the grandmother at that point tried to, I think, either lift it up or to move it. Uh, and then while she was trying to move the pressure cooker, uh, it exploded. And uh, the contents went everywhere, all over, um, all over Samantha, and um, and she burned uh, about sixty percent of her body, uh, second and third degree burns. Uh, she ended up having to. Um, she lost her leg. She lost a hand. Uh, lost some of her fingers on her other hand, and lost some of her toes on her on her other hand, and then just had. Um, uh, some terrible burns and, and scarring and disfigurement. I mean, just a horrific uh, injury to this, this two-year-old and just a, a, a you know, um, I can't even imagine, you know, the grandmother having to go through that where she's trying to basically just get this um, pressure cooker out of the way and then ends up uh, scalding her, her uh, granddaughter. Um, and so the, the, I'll, I'll cut to the end, which was that after a lot of work, a lot of very, very hard work, and we're, we're going to um, talk to John about this. The John and his team at Kelly Ustall were able to resolve this case for $27 million prior to going to trial. Um, so it's just a tremendous uh, result. But um, this is what I wanted to talk to you about, John. So we, my understanding is that um when the grandmother first told her story, she kind of made it sound like she had just dropped the um, pressure cooker or dropped the contents of the pressure cooker on Samantha. And so the police department, the fire department, and I think even the CPSC had done uh, an investigation and basically all concluded that this was the grandmother who had caused these burns by dropping the contents on the, the granddaughter. And then on top of that, the family had been to, I'm not sure how many lawyers before she found your law firm, but all of those lawyers had said um, no. And then um, even after you got involved, you had it test, you had some of these uh, pressure cookers tested by experts. And at, at least in the, in the beginning, 
those experts were telling you that they didn't see any defect with this pressure cooker. And so, um, I mean, I, I think I, I fast forwarded through a, maybe a, a lot of amount of time, but I, I you know, I, when I was reading this, I was just thinking, this is just great work to stick with this case, despite, you know, all of this, uh, what we're seeing here. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization. It's really important that your firm's site is, is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. Talk us through a little bit about what the police had found, what the, the firefighters had found, the CPSC, and even, even some of your own experts, and then how you kind of worked through that in order to... Uh, figure out that there was a case here and there was a defect with this uh, with this pressure cooker. So I'm glad you're asking it like that. I think it's really important. You know, if we combine a lot of things, you, you, you said some of the things that came out later. Um, and so the natural inclination is to say to yourself, well, I would have taken that case. And I would have gotten 37 million. <laughs> and listen, we're trial lawyers. That's what everyone thinks. God bless you. I, you know, I, I'm, if you didn't think like that, you, you know, you probably couldn't do this job. But I, I have come to the conclusion inside my firm. And so I think other people outside my firm can benefit from this. But I'm not criticizing anyone else. I'm, not, I'm saying I can conclusion inside my firm that we were turning down cases of horribly injured people whose only shot for justice was with us, who had a righteous case, but we didn't know it. Right. And I, I listen, I'll be blunt. I think it's happening all over the country. I think the corporations are getting away literally with murder. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is if a corporation decides to break the law, and, you know, you'll see why I mentioned that in this case in a little bit. But to take it out of this case, the corporation decides to break the law and they know people will die. 
that's homicide. They don't have to want to kill someone, right? Corporations aren't don't aren't psychopaths in that sense. They're psychopaths in the sense that greed is their only value. So, right. but that's still homicide. Okay. So, so, but, but what I what I tell people now is, you need to spend a lot more time and money on cases that are unlikely to be cases. And at the end of that, nine times out of 10, you'll have wasted a lot of time and money and wasted in the sense that you weren't able to help the client financially, but you did help get them answers, mm-hmm. right? You did help them say, okay, look, this is what happened. This is what, you know, the, 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 we don't have a defect here, whatever it is. So you're still helping the client in some sense. And because, you know, you can't do this for everybody, but when you're talking about catastrophically injured people, the, they need you, they need us. Oh, We're yeah. the only one who can help them. The, the rest of society is practically given up. The, the, Samantha would have had a hellish life. So, you know, so we have to come through from them. And because these cases are so valuable, if they do come through, that it's still, you're not going to go out of business. In fact, you're going to make your career off that. You're going to be taking these cases that no one else wants. And yeah, nine times out of 10, they're not cases. But, but in my experience, more than one time out of 10, you know, one time out of four or five, they turn out to be the, uh, at least some case. And sometimes like this, a really, really, really big case. But you just have to say to yourself, look, I'm an, I, I've been doing this a long time. I can tell you right away, that's almost definitely not a case. But I'm still going to put time and money into right. making sure. So, yeah, I, I just want to say I don't want to interrupt you, but I'm so glad you said that because my reaction reading about this case was not, um, oh, I would have taken that case and I would have gotten 37 million. My reaction was, especially with what you were dealing at with the beginning, um, was just a fear that I would have rejected that case, that I yeah. would that I would have turned it down or or what other cases like that I, I rejected based on the police reports or whatever. That was my fear. That was yeah. my immediate when I, when I um I told some uh, other great trial lawyers uh, I was at a thing uh, right after this settled uh, about this and um, all the guys from Florida some of whom have been on your program were like was I one of the ones that turned it down <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah exactly <laughs> you know? but um but they weren't but um but yeah so it is important to look at what the case looked like when it came in so let me start there so um. When, 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 when we looked at it, we had the grandmother was, it was a very modest home. The grandmother lived with her son and her granddaughter, and she was bathing Samantha in the sink, which, you know, some jurors would be like, well, that's odd. And while she was cooking, and if I could show you a picture, you know, it's like the sink is right next to the stove. It does right. seem a dangerous thing to do. Um, she was interviewed by the police uh, before we knew about the case many times on video because they were invest and they read Miranda because they were investigating whether this was an intentional child abuse. Mm. So um, that she's on the record very clearly on video. They have her demonstrate what happened. Um, and, and there, but there was the, that they didn't conclude she hadn't committed child abuse. That was still open when the case came. Um, she said in those videos that she got startled because, um, 
the pressure cooker has a release valve. And when it started to release, it started shooting out uh, steam and she got scared. So she grabbed it and she dropped it in on the, she wanted to carry it over the baby to the second sink on the other side. And she dropped it on the baby. Um, the pressure cooker looked intact. There were no obvious signs of damage or any sign of defect. And the CPSC um, had been called by the police and had told them there's no defect. And we shouldn't let this, you know, but how many times do you say, oh, I know that guy that turned it down. You know, he knows what he's mm -hmm. doing. I'm not going to waste more time and money. So it had been turned down by really reputable lawyers. So that's that's what came to us. Um, luckily, uh, someone in my office met with the family and was like, oh, my God, we got to help this little girl. Right. We have to help her. So that's how it started with that mindset. Well, look what you know, where did they buy it? Let's let's just at least see if we can help her. She's she, she spent a year in the hospital. She had all, parts of all four limbs amputated, including mm -hmm. uh, almost all like she's got disfiguring burns. This is why we became lawyers. Let's try to do something. So we had our own experts, and you <laughs> mentioned this, but we we asked them to um, to look at it, and they said, "Look, this is a pressure cooker. It works like other pressure cookers. There's nothing defective about it." And you know, at that point, um, I I don't I don't remember when. I think that was before I had a, a, a epiphany that I want to tell you about about the case. I think this was before. It, it was just that there had been a groundswell of pressure, especially from the younger lawyers in my firm, that we have to do everything we can, and so. We said to those experts, too, we, we went one, then got a second. We actually got three experts who said there was no defect. But two of them, we said, we want you to test it because they also couldn't tell us how it happened. Mm -hmm. They said, look, I don't know. It, 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 I don't know exactly what happened. She probably just dropped it. There's nothing wrong with it. But we asked them to test some things about how the relief valve went off and um, to see if they could find anything. And so we did spend some money and they said, look, it works perfectly. The, 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 the exemplars we tested, they have, uh, they work so that um, they can't open under pressure. Um, they, they bleed off pressure in an appropriate way if it gets overfilled. And that's how this whole thing started. The reason the pressure relief valve started to activate was she overfilled it. Okay. So that's probably the most dangerous point when we, when we, you know, and then my partners, the younger lawyers saying, hey, we got to keep going. But the partners are saying, hey, what? Well, you're wasting money. There's nothing here. <laughs> right, right. Right. You know, <laughs> just write a check to the client instead of the, the experts. <laughs> right. that, that might help. Yeah. Um, but so I think uh, let me say one more thing. I know I'm talking. I'm uh, what do they call it? Calls for a narrative. Your president. But, um, <laughs> right. 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 That, that's my shifting the blame on you instead of me for being. Uh, that's right. Um. But it's, I had an epiphany around that point, which was um, th there, if you go go into their kitchen, there was food all over the place. They, they, it was in the um, pictures, uh, the police photos that where I first saw that. But then we went there to kind of recreate where the pictures were. And how the hell did the food, there was food on the ceiling, food debris on the ceiling, right? So... In, in, in that moment, I said to myself, this did open under pressure, right? That's why there's food on the ceiling. It, it right. opened under pressure. And that so that kind of shifted in my head to like, 
if the experts can explain how it opened under pressure and not being defective, okay. But I at least need to get that answer. And they're not telling me that. They're just saying it's not defective. Mm -hmm. they, they don't know what happened, but it's not defective. So that's when we, um, we started to push harder. And I can, you know, the next part's kind of interesting too. I can just roll into that. Yeah, well, want. I mean, yeah. So my understanding, talk a little bit about how you, because it, it seemed like maybe you it, it were looking at one type of uh, pressure cooker in, and there had been maybe a change in the design or something. Yeah, but 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 Steve, it's way. If we start talking about that now, it's okay. it's <laughs> it's you you don't understand the the process that we went through to yeah. figure that out. Yeah. Right. Yeah, tell us that then. So, yeah, give me give me a a, a cup a minute or maybe even you're two you're the there. guest you're, you're the guest on the show, John. So you're <laughs> yeah, allowed to talk right. as much as you want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to be rude. Um, so so a, after I had that idea, I said let's take a corporate rep depot. Um, we we um, we we found out a couple of things which ended up being important in that deposition, which was. We had to file suit, remember, and I didn't know that we had a case. I've done that on multiple occasions. And if it turns out there's no case, I've always called the defense attorney and they've been very good about that. OK, we'll, we'll let it go. But um, they're not going to give us answers if we don't file suit. Right. So I felt it was legitimate. We filed suit. We found out that um, Vasconi is a very reputable uh, pressure cooker with a long history uh, of building pressure cookers in Mexico and lifetime brands wanted to appeal to the Hispanic market in the U S so they licensed the Vasconia name, but they didn't import Vasconia pressure cookers. They got a cheap pressure cooker from a factory in China and called it Vasconia. Right. That, 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 that also made me feel like, you know, that's a good jury appeal. That's kind of like fraudulent almost. Yeah. Um, and uh, the other thing that happened at that deposition was um, the ex the uh, corporate rep referred to the thing that I, I wish I could show you, but to try to explain with words on the side of the pressure cooker, there's a little gasket. And if the pressure gets too high, you know, theoretically, the pressure could get so high that it the metal rips apart and it explodes with the metal ripping into people like a bomb. So you can't allow that. They have to have a, 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 pr a pressure relief valve. And so if the pressure gets too high, this gasket blows out, it gets pushed out of a hole and steam comes off to, to bleed out pressure. And he called that a fail safe. So I, right then I said, okay, gotta catch a flight. Uh, you know, depot's not over, but I'm stopping right now because I was like, okay, I'll go to trial with this case now. Cause that did not fail safe, whatever. Right, <laughs> it right, startled yeah. her, it scared her. The, he said it's a fail safe. It didn't fail safe. I, it's not a great case, but I have they have a case. I'm going to spend more on this. So yeah, not everyone agreed, but <laughs> at that point, yeah. I was like, I'm in on this. We're going to find out what happened. And so we did testing to to force that gasket to blow to see if enough steam could come out to cause damage to the baby. I don't know why the grandmother said she dropped it, but at that point I figured that's what happened. The steam blew out the side and burnt the baby. You know, you're you're allowed to stand in front of a pressure cooker and cook. So it's not, yeah, she was in the sink, but you're allowed to be pro close to a pressure cooker. And it had no fill line. So you, they say she overfilled it. Well, almost 
the real Vasconia pressure cookers have a fill line. So you know how high you can go. So I was feeling decent about the case. We tested it and um, it was scary as F. I mean, so, I, I, so I wait, let, let me ask you room. a question. When you say you tested it, 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 was it your experts testing or were you doing some of your own testing just to kind of see how can we make this thing fail? Yeah, so we we did end up doing our own testing. This was, I think, the last one we did with an expert. And to be honest with you, the reason we switched was cost. It, right. it, we at, by this point we had spent a fortune now on a case that was probably not a case. Um, and the experts were saying, "We don't want to take your money. You know, there there's no case here." So I kind of lost faith, and you know, it, it wasn't a team. They they didn't believe in it. Mm -hmm. And in a way, as scary as that test was, you know, we, we rigged it up to blow. So it didn't show a defect in blowing, but it, it, there was not enough steam to come out to burn her. So we basically proved that that's, she didn't get burned by the steam coming up, but it was so startling. It, I thought, you know, yeah, that's going to scare the hell out of the grandmother. It's certainly not a fail safe if it's that scary when it blows. But we couldn't keep spending that much money. The experts weren't really in agreement. So they thought we, we were ludicrous. You know, they thought it was ridiculous. So we started doing testing in-house. We have a, a guy, I actually went to high school with him who, who works with me. He does everything. He's like a genius. But he's also, he used to uh, build sets for plays. He, can, he builds us exhibits. And he's like, I, I can do the testing. So we started doing testing. He would do it at night, practically three or four nights a week. This went on for months. Basically, what I tasked them with was, tell me how this opened under pressure or prove to me it didn't, because I believe it did. And, and I should say this, pressure cookers are not allowed to open under pressure. That's very right. dangerous. They have to have a lock. When, when they heat up and there's all this pressurized heat it's super dangerous so they're not allowed to open under pressure so during that testing oh my god in hindsight it was so stupid <laughs> I, 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 I should be sued because we already knew this testing was dangerous with experts it, it, it that time i told you when it was scary that thing flew around the room right it launched and started flying around and it flew past people people's heads oh my god well that happened again in our own internal testing, and it passed between two lawyers' heads who were standing <laughs> next to each other. And I, I said, oh, my God, we're so lucky. I can't believe I put them in that position. And that was the key to the case. Okay, so that's going to then, now it's going to roll. It's solved. That's what ended up solving the mystery when we said to ourselves, we have to find a safe way to do this testing. And... Um, so at some point we figured out, hey, we don't need pressure and heat to activate the lock because it's a it's like a plunger. Let's just use a mechanical device inside the pressure cooker that we can communicate with by Bluetooth. It's a little bit complicated, but once you get it built, activate the lock from inside. Like pressure would activate it by pushing the detente up. We'll mm -hmm. just push it up mechanically. And um we did that and the, all the exemplars worked perfectly and were not defective. But then I thought, well, hold on, we could do it to the real one, right? That we can't pressurize the real one, we can't pour it under heat, but this little thing, and we did it and it opened. 
And suddenly it became clear they were they had fucking fixed the problem. Am I allowed to curse? I'm yes. sorry, I'll yeah. say it again. <laughs> they, they had, I mean, think about the evilness behind yeah. that. And by the way, it wasn't Lifetime Brands. I just want to say that. You'll see. It was the factory in China that did this. Lifetime Brands okay. didn't know about it. They figured out what they had done was they were putting the wrong size part inside the handle. So when it locked, it didn't actually lock. The lock was not a lock. It was just a mechanical right. thing that didn't lock. So at some point they realized that they fixed it. And the exemplars the factory gave to Lifetime Rins to give to us, guess what? They made sure they were right. not defective. So our experts found no defect. We found no defect. And it was only because in this unique circumstance, we were able to test the actual in a way that wasn't destructive. Otherwise, they would have gotten away with it. And that makes me think, how many times have other companies gotten away with it? I bet yeah. you it's legion. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis <laughs> you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. 
So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. I'm just wondering if you had to deal with any um, jurisdictional issues with this being made somewhere else or if either Florida had laws or you had enough done by the um, by lifetime brands or or the importer that you weren't you didn't have to mess with jurisdictional stuff. Well, we couldn't or we didn't. But I would think it's safe to say we couldn't sue the factory. Right. uh, Realistically or practically. But lifetime brands in Florida, we had good enough law that I mean. Were they the manufacturer? Maybe they hired the company. They, you know, they, they, but they argued they weren't the manufacturer, but still as the distributor uh, in Florida, we had good law on that. But, you know, it did prevent us from getting documents from China that I would like to have gotten. We only had the documents that Lifetime had. Um, I will tell you that the Lifetime's attorney, I mean, you should have seen him when I told them what happened. He was so furious, right? I mean, he was not in on this. You know, he's a lawyer and, a, and a, you know, but but still it was happening, you know? Right. So. Yeah, well, and that's, I mean, there's just so many products like that that people don't know that I think non-lawyers are, are, are frequently completely unaware that you can see these this brand name recognition that you have that you think is all made in one place. And you could really be looking at something that was, made in a basically judgment proof by a judgment proof manufacturer somewhere else with just this name slapped on it. And depending on your state, Georgia's law is pretty bad on it, depending on what the, the domestic sort of importer does. Um, you know, you can be screwed and that's, it's just so scary, especially when you hear stories like this, where it's, it is something down the line where they're just using the wrong size part. You guys talk about Ford cases a lot. So I know you're up on what's happening, you know, and and uh, Steve, I know you obviously would know this, but, you know, if if we get a car that's sold in Georgia and they then, you know, initially sold new in Georgia and then it's sold used in Florida, we might not be able to to get Ford. And, you know, that that can be a problem, uh, you know, it, it, and they're do, the the uh, foreign manufacturers are taking uh, advantage of that right. uh, new Supreme Court decision. And so you're going to go to trial against Toyota USA without any documents right, of, right. about the build of the car. You know, it's 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 a wall that has been built to. I don't want to say the Supreme Court built it for this reason, so I'm going to say, but but I do believe they I, I do believe they knew the effect. Okay, And the effect is that it will protect corporations who are committing crimes and it will allow them to get away with it. Um, You know, we we came up in a certain way. I I don't know. I don't know uh, where you guys went to uh, undergrad or law school. But, you know, if you go to Harvard Law School and I'm talking about the people on the Supreme Court that most of them went to Harvard or Yale, they they uh, uh, met other good people at Harvard and Yale, and they were good people. And those people that they're good friends with went off to represent big companies and work at big law firms. And they're still in their mind, good people, and they wouldn't do anything horrible. And it's just, 
there is a there's it doesn't matter if you have they say, oh, we've got liberals and conservatives. Bullshit. We've got a corporate court. Tell me, show me one person on the Supreme Court who didn't go through Harvard and Yale and have friends with all these corporate lawyers and, and trust them. So they come out with these decisions on arbitration or uh, on um, jurisdiction with the um, with the car companies that just I guess they assume corporations don't ever do anything wrong. I mean, right. it's so mm-hmm. insane from our perspective, mm-hmm. but that's yeah. what they think. And so when we have diversity on the Supreme Court, I wish we had. I wish we had union people who right. lawyers yeah. and people, you know, I mean, people, people who saw, see whistleblower lawyers, people who know the truth about big companies today. Yeah. You know, it's one of the things that, um, you know, there's times when the law doesn't keep up with how industry's changing or technology's changing. And that, this is one of those instances where at least in Georgia, uh, the law has not kept up with, you know, how products come into Georgia and how they can come in under a Chinese manufacturer. Somebody else can put their name on it and sell it as theirs when it's not. And, uh, and the law in Georgia is not good on that. And it's definitely something that needs to change. And, uh, I'm glad that Florida seems to be better than Georgia, at least in that regard, or else you would have had a difficult time, uh, you know, holding lifetime brands uh, accountable for this product. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, one thing I, I wanted to ask you, it, it, from one of the things I read, it sounded like you were able to find some other pressure cookers that were older that had the same problem as yours. Is that right? Yeah. So once we once we realized that um, that pre- the subject pressure cooker operated differently than the exemplars, we we had it was very difficult to find older ones, but we ended up doing a worldwide. E- search and we found some in South America I think three maybe two and when we got those we took those apart and then we saw that they, they had the wrong size part in the lock so that's that's how we figured out because you know once once we saw that the subject opened while the exemplars didn't it was still possible that there was a manufacturing defect that wasn't intentional or there was some abuse of the pressure cooker in some mm-hmm. way that had that had caused the problem later on. So, but once we got those, we knew what the story was, and so then we demanded that the subject pressure cooker be disassembled with the defense. But we already knew what it was going to show. Um, right. I, one other thing, which I think is interesting, because so you know we didn't know when we got the case the secrets that the corporation was hiding. <clears throat> That's pretty much always the case, unless. Right. Our fellow lawyers have kind of gotten some of it already. But in this case, we also had a situation where our client was saying something devastating to the case, um, but also was contradicted by the physical evidence. So um, the way that ended up playing out was we, we one of her, there were two things about that. One was um, the, the, the son said when he ran in, his mother was screaming he ran around the corner he slipped on water so well how did water get on the floor again she didn't drop it it because it's locked nothing comes out there somehow it opened and her neighbor heard her screaming and ran over and she told us she was yelling it exploded it exploded so at first in focus groups i was saying look she thought it she dropped it uh, what can I tell you? It's, it's a quick event and she got it wrong. But we know at the time she was yelling, it exploded. Well, the focus group jurors did not like that. 
Um, and, and finally, one focus group uh, person said, but she did drop it. It exploded open right. and she dropped it. Yeah. And oh my God, of course. Why didn't I think of that? Right. <laughs> and once you did that, the, you know, the, it was a strong, strong case. So yeah, I yeah. just told them, you know, the one, the one reason, thing I c- was worried about recommending settlement was um, <clears throat> it, it's hard to get a recall w- without the uh, publicity of a big verdict. Right. Uh, but Samantha was too vulnerable to, 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 to do anything except, you know, th- there were, the grandmother was very bad in her video depositions. It wasn't just that she said things that hurt us to the police. She was very uh, aggressive. Um, she felt responsible, but she took that out in ways which we all would. But she, she, and and you know, in in some some of my partners said you cannot win the case just from watching clips that I cut out of the worst parts of her deposition. So you know, I, I'm sure I would have won. I have no doubt. But um, like I told you guys, I'm narrowing some of it. So you know, <laughs> I I ended up deciding it's. It, it, we can't take that risk with her. And so we we just did the math, added in our fee. I told them the number, gave them a deadline, and um, and they paid. That's great. Uh, you know, the the thing about the grandmother, uh, that, that's, um, uh, you know, uh, I'm wondering, if, you know, um, a lot of times you'll see that when somebody somebody has something terrible happen to a family member or something terrible happens, they just sort of take all the blame themselves, even though because it's almost like their way of, you know, atoning for yeah. for what's happened. And it almost sounds like that's what happened with this with the grandmothers that she was, you know, re- just wanted to take this on herself and take responsibility for it um, because she felt she owed that to her granddaughter. Um, was there some of that going on, you think, as far as why she was, uh, testifying the way she was? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, she was also scared. Um, the police were looking at taking the baby away. Right. Um, she, um, she was, um, ashamed on some level, I think. And she certainly dedicated every waking moment of the rest of her life to caring for Samantha and making her life as as good and decent as possible. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, like you said, it's just a lot going on in your head in that situation. Yeah. And depositions are so weird. I mean, I, you know, I feel like there, there are these clients that I know really well that I've spent all this time with, not just preparing them for their depositions, but just in general, talking to them about what happened, you know, being at their house, going out to the scene, whatever it is. And then sometimes in their deposition with a defense lawyer there, they will be like this person I've never met. You know, their, their attitude will change. There's some, there's some of their answers will change not necessarily in a good way or a bad way, but it's just, you're just sitting there like, what, where, what is happening? <laughs> right. <laughs> Who right. is this person? Where is the person that I know? Well, and, and there is this, uh, th- there is this uh, sort of human nature when something goes wrong is to, is to just make assumptions or, or take responsibility for, 
you know, what's happening. I've told this story before about the case that, uh, that uh, my law partner, Jeff Harris, and I tried involving a, a park to reverse of a, uh, or a false park with a Ford Explorer. And one of the things that we had when we were going to trial was that, what you know, when our client was sitting there with this Ford Explorer sitting on top of her with her legs sort of pushed over her head, um, she told the police officer, you know, I thought I put the vehicle in park, but I must have left it in reverse. And at first we thought that was going to be a really tough statement to to overcome because, you know, basically she was saying she had left the, the vehicle in reverse and Ford, of course, was uh, was all over that. Um, and then, you know, we kind of thought about it and we had done some focus groups and, and we just sort of decided, well, if, you know, when, when something like this happens, when a, when a vehicle moves in reverse that you, and you don't know that it's, that it will do that from time to time, what else is she going to say? She's going to say, I, I thought I put it in park, but I must have left in reverse because how else is it going to go backwards? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so I, I think that's, it's very similar to your case with the, with the grandmother. Right. That's you a know. great point. Yep. Um, so, John, how far out were you from trial when when you got this, you know, settlement offer that you felt like you really could and should recommend? Well, I was about two weeks from trial, but um, I, I had uh, the, the, the I gave them what eight days or whatever it was, but the deadline was the hour before we started the hearing on the motion to amend for punitives, okay. which would have a day delayed the trial if we won. Um, and then, you know, I haven't told anyone this before, but uh, I was going to change my expert. So this was our fourth now, right? We had gotten a new guy and we had told it, look, we, here's the case. It's already there, right? Yeah. I prove it's already proven. In fact, their, their expert, I got him to admit everything that I, about defect, everything on, in, in, he, he didn't know as much. I didn't tell, I told them some of it before that deposition, but not all of it. So it was a good, that was a good deposition. But um, our guy then went, or he might've gone before, I don't remember, but it just didn't work. It just wasn't going to work. I needed a new expert. So we had spent, we had gone and figured out and, got, and I was going to, even if it meant a new trial date. So <laughs> it wasn't going to go that uh, either right. one or both reasons. Yeah, because in Florida, you have to, in order to put punitive damages in, you have to make an evidentiary showing uh, to essentially show that you it can get punitives to the jury. It's not so you're not allowed to just plead it and have it as part of the case, right? Right. And then once you once you get permission, you have to plead and they have to answer and you can't go to trial until that process is done. Gotcha. I was just curious because I was, I, you know, I was just thinking about that time that like, you know, month ish before trial where you're really starting to get in trial mode and, you know, you've got your, your motions in limine and stuff that are part, starting to be due or you've done your pretrial order or whatever. And you're so, um, depending on the case, you're so conflicted because you're really starting to put, put the work in and envision right. what the trial is going to be like. Um, but there's also yeah. maybe these settlement talks happening on the side. I, um, I, I was disappointed for that reason mm -hmm. of that in that the settlement. And also, like I said, the publicity would have helped yeah. get a recall and there was no recall. And I've tried to pressure the CPSC since, I mean, I, I have proof, right? Yeah. But, um, the, you know, 
the, the, I, I don't regret the decision at all. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it was it was um, it was the right decision for for her. But yeah, I can think that and also think, man, I would have gotten a verdict so <laughs> right, right. that it wouldn't have been paid. Like, you know, right. they would, that's a, the court would have sent it back down. And I tried it again and it would have been even bigger. And this was right. going on for 15 years in my mind. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. Right. That's yeah. Right. <laughs> Well, and this is also one of those things, like sometimes you're in the, you're in the case and you're ready to try it, but you know, it's, it's like a, you know, medical negligence case or something like that, where it's like, you know, you don't have necessarily sort of, um, something that's as as infuriating as this or the implications, the scale is not as potentially as big as this. So, um, when you're thinking about, when you're weighing those things, it's, it's maybe an easier decision than it would be here for you, but obviously it was still a terrific result and a oh, massive yeah. settlement that I, you know, you had well, to, they I, had to, I, I have to ask because we, you know, anybody who's been in a partnership, especially uh, law partners, we've all been through this where, um, you know, my, my, my law partners have always been very supportive of my cases and I'm supportive of theirs, but it doesn't mean that there aren't times when we don't question their cases, be like, are you sure this is the one we want to take to trial? And, um, <laughs> and I'm just wondering how were your, uh, I mean, you know, how relieved were your law partners when, uh, when you got that case resolved, uh, you know, for the, you know, amount that you did. They, they, they were relieved. I, I, you know, I, I agree that I, I, I think like you, I, I, my, my, my partners are very, um, we're very, I'm sure everyone would say this, but it's true. Like we're very trusting of each other on, on their cases uh, and what they're doing. Um, I also think I have great, I mean, I think we've got six lawyers, um, and I'm proudest of the lawyers that I trained that have eight figure verdicts, you know, right. so I, I don't think it's that common to have a firm with so many lawyers that get uh, eight figure verdicts. But, uh, you know, from a certain perspective, this was insanity. You know, there, right, right, there, right. there were I, I was told you cannot win this case. <laughs> right. uh, and, and, you know, at the time I wasn't like I was like, yes, I can. I was like, well, you might be right. But I, I got to get I got to put this to bed. Yeah. And and since then, I think all of us have adopted this attitude more. It's OK to spend a lot of time and money on something that doesn't turn into a case. Yeah. We, I, 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 we have four cases now, which I'm tracking because I like I'm trying to convince people that there's this vast criminal scheme in all these companies and they're getting away with it. And people who are devastatingly injured are not getting compensation and it's not right. So I'm trying to convince every lawyer to, to look at these cases more. We now have four cases that one was a verdict and uh, three settlements over $20 million on cases that at least seven, the three of them had more than 10 firms turn them down. One of them only had seven firms turn them down. But just think about it. that's 80. That, it's over 100 million dollars. One of them is yeah. almost 30. It's it. That is a lot of money. So you you can't be penny wise and pound foolish uh, from a business perspective. I'm not telling you to go bankrupt when I'm telling you to <laughs> take a lot of time and money on cases that you're probably going to, you know, they're not yeah. cases. But no, it, it's a great point. Um, you know, and, and I, I'll be honest, I mean, there's been cases where uh, that have come into our office and I, you know, I'll look and see the lawyers who've looked at it and have turned it down. And if it's somebody that I know and have respect for, usually I'll pick up the phone and call them and say, 
you know, what, what was wrong with this case? Why didn't you, why didn't you take it? And that doesn't always mean that we'll reject it, but if they've, if they've rejected it, it, it is something you got to consider. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure we've all been through that, um, you know, where you have cases that come in that, uh, that some, you know, some other lawyer who you know and respect has looked at and decided, you know, to take a pass on. Yeah. yeah Cause we're so busy, you know, yeah. and, and also we're, our experience means something like we're not wrong. We right. can quickly size it up. It's that's probably not a case. That probably is. And in the courtroom, you have to make decisions with limited information and quickly. And that's why we're good. We, yeah. we make the decision more right than wrong. More likely we're right than wrong in the courtroom. But you don't have to make it quickly in this in this situation. And so maybe we can almost every other lawyer, no matter how good they are, they're they're making that initial determination on likelihood. But like, if I said to you, um, look, you can take, borrow my car. There's only a one in a hundred chance that it's going to blow up today. You're not going to take my car. <laughs> right. Right. So I'm trying to get you to look at it more like that than like, yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. It's not a case, but let's make sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's good advice. And I think that's really good advice for newer lawyers. I mean, number one, because a lot of times, if it, depending on the case, if they're getting a call, they're maybe not the first person getting the call, right? If it's right. especially if it's coming straight in from the client. So it's it's yeah. a client who's had to go down the list. But also, you know, that is something that at least for me, um, you are not taught how to do in law school at all. I mean, at you know, all. you're taught what to do with existing cases. You're right. not taught, you know, how to decide how to, to pick a case. You know, that's something you have to learn from the people you work with, or, or if you work on your own, I guess, I, learn it on your own. But I do really like that because, it, because the advice that you have, John, is just, a, I just, I don't think people get a lot of advice on that. You know, they're left to just sort of figure it out case by case. And it's a really hard part of the job when you start having those calls with people that have been through a lot um, and they're not lawyers, right? So they're telling you a lot of stuff you want to know and a lot of stuff that you don't want to know, but you're kind of their therapist in that moment. In addition to to other things, it's a lot like it's, um, but I, but again, I think that, that giving, you know, the advice that you have is especially is useful for new lawyers who may have that time, right? you know, depending on if they've gone out on their own and they need the cases and they need the business, they may have that sort of those man hours to put into it and find those cases, you know, and, and just spend more time on them just because somebody else turned them down. Doesn't mean um, they're not going to be a good case for you. Right. That's right. Well, and, and, you know, and I've said this, uh, you know, in our practice, this is, this is the, you know, when you do, especially product liability cases, I would say, if, when you do products cases, it's the decision you've made, you know, and we're all passionate about it, but those cases just to figure out if you have a case are, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an undertaking. It's an investment. Um, even with, you're, even you're with gonna, just the one expert. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. I mean, but you're going to have to spend money in order to figure out if you have a case. Um, it's just the way that, that is the nature of the business. It's it getting trained in products cases, you know, learning from someone who knows how to work up a products case, mentoring, being mentored by someone like that, working there for, you know, years. It's a, incredibly valuable to a, a trial lawyer, even if they end up not doing products cases. Right. Um, the, the, I've never lost a commercial case. 
And one of the judges who in, in that I'm in front of a lot down here said, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing to see it tried like a products case, a commercial case, like a products case. It's much shorter. It's a, and I think that's why I win commercial cases, right? That, right. that training. Yeah. So, no, I, we, we've actually said that, you know, if you take the product liability model, as far as how you work up the case, how you develop it, and then how you put it on trial, and you put that on a lot of other cases, uh, you'll have, a, in my opinion, a very successful practice. Um, yeah. So, um, well, um, so, so John, are, I wanted... you, are you guys taking applications for, uh, for young lawyers? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we, absolutely. We want to we want, uh, you know, uh, go getters. Um, yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you about your um, just is, is there anything else from the focus group that you thought was helpful in, in either developing this case or deciding how you should present the case? Yeah, there were there were two other things that uh, I didn't. Uh, put well, actually, I was going to say that I didn't realize they were so important, but that's not actually what happened. The first few focus groups that happened, I was in another trial, and when I came back, I was told we lost three focus groups. Right? And I said, "Well, wait, that's not why we do focus groups." What you know? What, you're, I'm not. I didn't. I didn't say to go do focus groups so you could tell me if we should take this case or not. That is not why we do focus groups. I don't know about yeah. you guys. Oh yeah. So so, I said, "Show me what what did we learn? What what did we do wrong? That 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 you know we're, we're trying to figure out what plays and how and and how people think of it." So when I reviewed the the data from them. Uh, one thing that stood out to me that we hadn't done in those focus groups was um, the the and, and we didn't have the other thing that I told you where the, the focus group juror had um, had given us that great insight that it, she did drop it. So but the other two things uh, at that point that we were doing wrong or that I guess you would say we learned from the focus group, but we had to put in the time and effort to figure it out in response to the focus group was. Number one, it was very important to the jurors. In fact, I don't think we ever lost the focus group once we added this fact right at the beginning that they wanted to penetrate the Hispanic market. So they licensed the Vasconian name, but they didn't import real, true Vasconia pressure cookers. They went and got fake cheap pressure cookers from China. The whole right. case starts with a fraud, yeah. right? It just yeah. changes everything. That was very important. So one of the things I said we want to change in our next presentation. The other thing was, it is very difficult to explain this part of the case. And I insist with our lawyers on simplicity. If you can't tell it simply, you're going to go into a killing field and you're going to you're going to lose credibility if you can't tell it simply then you have to eliminate it from your presentation and so they had eliminated uh, this part of the case which was so when they when they asked for the this pressure cooker from China the company had was building metric uh, pressure cookers in liters but for the market they wanted to appeal to they wanted them in uh gallons in imperial and so it was a slight change um and not much but it was a change in the uh, size and they had to pick which handle to use okay that's where the problems really happened because they used 
a handle from a smaller pressure cooker and the part was too small internal. Um, and so that's where it started. But since they changed the size of the volume of the pressure cooker, in their mind, all we did was change the size a little bit. So we don't have to do UL testing again. The right. law doesn't require UL testing, but they put UL approved on their, on their, uh, sales material, right? And that's not true. That was a lie. They didn't retest. And if they had, they would have found out. So, you know, that that we had to find a way to tell it simply, but we had to explain. It was very complicated when UL requires mm-hmm. testing. It, but that was an important point that they lied that this was a UL, uh, 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 a pressure cooker that met UL standards. It did not. Yeah. So yeah. those were two points from the pressure from the focus groups, um, at least indirectly. Yeah, no, that, yeah. that's great. I'll I'll never forget when I was a brand new lawyer and I worked for a lawyer named Joe Freeman, who was sort of this uh, old school uh, flamboyant trial lawyer, and he defended J.C. Penney, defended Chrysler, GM, and had done a lot of this big defense work. And he would get brought in a lot of times to do focus groups or mock trials for the corporation. And he always told me at the beginning, uh, he always told me that if he had won all of his focus groups or won all of his mock trials, he knew he had done something wrong in the focus group because uh, he wanted to see, you know, he he knew he had either weighted the facts wrong or not told the story right on behalf of the plaintiffs. And uh, and so I've always taken that to heart whenever you do focus groups or mock trials is you always want to see you know, what your weaknesses are, see what, you know, how you can lose the case before you decide, you know, what's the best way to win it. So. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I tell, I tell people here, your goal is to find out if we lose, why it would have happened. That's right? right. So if you win the focus group, what did you learn? I want to know if we lose, how we would lose if we're going to lose. Um, let me tell you one other quick story, yeah. though, because I love trial stories. It, it's focus group related, but it's it's a trial story. I have one case. I think it was my first commercial case. And I it was my father-in-law. That's the only reason I took it. And so I'm like, dude, we're settling. Like, I'm not going to take the risk of losing this case. I got to see <laughs> right, right. for the rest of my life. They would not pay a dime. So I focus group that more than I've ever focused group a case uh, in my life. And we couldn't lose. Right. It was in a way it was a simple case. Um, it, it was complicated legally, but not emotionally. And the, the, the defense attorneys were commercial lawyers and they would kept telling me, don't you know, you can't pierce the corporate veil. And I was like, I don't think the jurors know that. Right. You know, I, right. Right? so so but I tried it. We couldn't lose. We couldn't lose. We, we even got into demographics and how much money and uh because it was a lot of money at stake and it was a big company and maybe they don't like executives at company. I couldn't find a bad, a bad uh, juror. <laughs> so I, this was another judge that I was in front of a lot. And I was known for these really long voir dires. Um, I had done tobacco cases with him, I think already at the time. And I, you know, we would fight, we would fight in front of the, the veneer. I, that how much he would try to make me say in front of them, you only, I only have 50 minutes left or I only have two hours. And I wouldn't, I would say, I don't know, Judd could go into tomorrow. And so the, that's the only reason I did it this in front of this judge. It's a, it was risky, but I knew he was going to be so pleased about a short voir dire. <laughs> so I got up, it was against, the case was against AutoNation, who's owned by Wayne Heisinger. 
um, who I think it's certainly in Florida, he's, you know, right. Yeah. But I think around the country, he's well known as a billionaire. So I said, does anyone know Wayne Heisinger personally? First question of why do you know? Can everyone use their common sense? Yes. Judge, we'll take any of them. And I said, yeah. <laughs> and the focus group gave me the confidence to do that. And the defense lawyer wasn't ready right. to stand up and say anything. And he made some serious mistakes in his voir dire. And we won. The jury was that, out for like six minutes. That's, that's awesome. awesome. That's great. I love that. That is so cool. <laughs> Um, well, John, this has been just a fantastic discussion. Um, I, I want to make sure about the Gonzalez versus Lifetime Brands uh, Incorporated case. Is there anything else you want to make sure that our listeners know that you haven't had a chance to tell them? I really don't think so. Um, I mean, look, I have a couple of things over here, a couple of notes I took. Well, this will only take a couple, uh, very short to tell you, yeah. but there, once we figured out that it could open, you know, I, I really, I, I hope I've given you a sense of how hard it was to develop this, but I really have excluded some really difficult parts. So just to give you a taste of one of those, just because it could open under pressure, we still had to prove that it did. Right. And how, how did it open under pressure? It, you know, did she open it? It could open under pressure, but why would she open it? She didn't have time. So that was a very difficult thing to prove. But uh, one day on the internet, I, we were looking at pressure cooker situations and I saw a video of a pressure cooker with the side valve like this releasing. You know, it was in a restaurant where they had a, a camera always on uh, and someone had clipped it and put it in YouTube. But it's it it's blue and it started rotating. And then I remember that happened in our test too. Remember when I flew through the room, yeah. it, it was rotating. And so the way there was, there was the handle was on the top of the pressure cooker, not the bottom. So when she grabbed that, if there was this rotational force, then that would have rotated the pressure cooker open. That was extremely difficult to prove. None of the experts wanted to believe that it was possible. We had to do our own testing on that, too, to prove that it was indeed possible that the rotational force created by the thing blowing, if she was holding the handle, would open it on its own. Wow. So, I mean, so the rotational force is so much so that the, the top basically opens while it's under pressure? Yes. If yeah. well, if someone's holding the handle, so okay. the top is the cop can't rotate. If no one's holding the handle, it rotates together and flies through the air, and it could take I someone's see. head off. But yeah. if someone, when she grabbed it, which was a reasonable thing to do, the bottom had still could, could move, and the top couldn't, so it rotated open. Wow! Wow! That's great. I mean, this is uh, this case has just been a uh, a lesson in um, in hard work and perseverance. And and you know, if you see the case and and uh, believe in it, uh, not to give up. I mean, it's just uh, such hard work, work, such hard work for your clients that you know most people would have not gone it, had not done it, not taken the risk. Yeah, definitely. The hardest thing I think for the younger lawyers were by the end we had I think four. Four and a half lawyers working full time on it and two paralegals and then Roland, who was doing the testing. But the hardest thing for the younger lawyers, and that's why it goes back to what Steve was saying about being trained in product liability, was because 200 times in a minor ways and a dozen ways in major ways, we changed our theory of the case because we had proven it wrong. 
we went to get, you know, like a demonstrative or something to show the jury about our theory. And we proved our theory wrong. Right. So again and again, we had to say the, 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 the one young lawyer in particular would say, but that's not our theory. I'm like, well, that wasn't our theory. Okay. Yes. You know, it, right. it, it's an evolving thing. It's, it, there's nothing wrong with it. We're, we're trying to prove our case, but when we disprove it, well, we have to be honest right. about that. That part doesn't work. Let's find what does. Yeah. 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 Um, well, we can't wrap up this episode, John, without um, me letting you know, and he can just edit it out if he doesn't like it, that um, Raz, our producer, texted me while we were recording to tell me that he's cooking dinner in a pressure cooker right now. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it's so, not Vasconia. Yeah. If he, if he hasn't had a panic attack in the course of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> no, Don't overfill it. it. Hopefully it has a fill line at least. Yeah. All right. All right. Are you good on the brand, Raz? Yes. Yes, I'm good. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, John, this has been just a great uh, uh, discussion. Uh, I want to remind everybody we've been talking about the Gonzalez versus Lifetime, Lifetime Brands Incorporated case, uh, which resulted in a $27 million uh, settlement. It was uh, down in Broward County, Florida. Uh, and we've been talking with John Eustel of Kelly and Eustel or Kelly Eustel. Uh, and you can look up John at kellyustal.com. That's K-E-L-L-E-Y-U-U-S-T-A-L.com. Uh, John, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. I love talking about cases. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's why we do the whole podcast is we enjoy talking to the great trial lawyers about the tremendous work they do every day. Yeah, you can tell listening <laughs> to it. You can tell that you guys uh, are really into it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>